We all owe them, but very few of us know them. They are the men and women of our military and first responder communities. And these are their stories. American Warrior Radio is on the air. Welcome to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're coming to you from the Silencer Central studios. Right now, our friends at Silencer Central are having a buy one, get one free offer. Visit silencercentral.com to find out if owning a silencer is legal in your state and learn more about this great holiday offer. Electronic warfare has become an essential element of modern-day combat, but the basic principles have been around for a long time. In World War II, Winston Churchill called it the Battle of the Beams. The German Luftwaffe was using radio beam navigation to conduct very accurate night bombing missions during the Blitz. British intelligence countered with their own jamming and deception signals that caused the German bombers to fly wildly off course. Perhaps one of the best recent examples of the effective use of electric combat occurred in 2007 when it was reported that the Israelis used it to disrupt Syrian air defenses and fly all the way across most of Syria undetected and undeterred to bomb a suspected nuclear site. The mission of the Distinguished Flying Cross Society is to honor, preserve, and teach the legacy of the men and women who have demonstrated heroism or extraordinary achievements in aerial flight, resulting in the award of the Distinguished Flying Cross. You can learn more at dfcsociety.org. Today, as part of our educational partnership with the Distinguished Flying Cross Society, we're going to be speaking with an electronic combat warrior who flew 100 missions during the Vietnam War. Welcome to American Warrior Radio, Alexander Underwood, Master Sergeant, United States Air Force, retired. Hey, Alex, it's great to have you here on the show. I don't know, I guess you lost a bet to some of the Distinguished Flying Cross Society, huh? I lost a bet? Yeah, that's how you got on the show. Most people don't come on <laughs> willingly, Alex. Well... I have a I have a good friend who's a member of the Stingers Flying Cross. I think you know him. More than likely, I do. Well, we're we're glad to have you either way. Now, your your story yeah. is is very well, not curious, but it's it's an exciting mm-hmm. one. And um, why why the military and why the Air Force? It's my understanding your father, I think, was a bugler during the First World War. Yes, my dad was a bugler in the First World War, and he served in France. Now, what got you interested in airplanes? Oh, I have to go back. Uh, when I was in junior high school, um, I had a history teacher, and he was a naval aviator, and he fought in the Battle of the Coral Sea. And a lot of times we would have a history lesson, and he would stop the lesson and start talking about the Battle of the Coral Sea, what was going on. And... I started looking at movies with aircraft and Navy uh, taking off off of aircraft carrier, and I said, wow, that looks like fun. But also watched uh, movies that were pertaining to the Air Force, and um, that was another item that got me uh, interested in flying. But what really got me interested in flying, I joined an organization called the Civil Air Patrol. Now, during the war, the Civil Air Patrol flew along our coast to protect us from German submarines and Japanese submarines. And if one of our aircraft went down in the United States, they would kind of go and locate it. So I spent some time in the Civil Air Patrol. I went from private to first lieutenant, went up the scale. And uh, I really enjoyed it because what I learned was a lot of 
things that you would learn in basic training, marching, military formations, military courtesy and discipline. And so a lot of that really got me interested in joining the Air Force, and I said, well, that's what I'm going to do. And I joined the Air Force right out of high school in June of 1958. Now, did you earn your license then as part of the Civil Air Patrol, your pilot's license? No. Okay. No, I, I, didn't, I didn't earn my pilot's license. But what I did was I learned the uh, military drill. And so when it was time for the class to learn marching and precision drill, I was the instructor. So the commander of our unit was, his name was uh, Major Herr, and he was a glotted pilot during uh, World War II. But he also uh, flew uh, aircraft, too. And so we had, a, we had a really great organization because our meetings were held in the Philadelphia Museum of Art. So there was a lot of things going on that we could actually see things, you know, firsthand. You can go look at the airplane, look what we're talking about. Uh, we learned about how an airplane flies, what makes it fly. And uh, so a lot of things I knew about aircraft before I even got in the Air Force. So a lot of things came easy to me. Alex, say, you know, the recruiters always say join the Air Force or, you know, join whatever branch, see the world. You thought you were getting a pretty good deal when you got shipped off to France, but uh, apparently that was one of the coldest winters on record there. Yeah. Also, at that time when I got shipped to France, there was a very important history thing going on. We were in the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I had on my orders stamped, in case of a general alert, you are to report to the nearest military installation. So I had that thing on my mind while I flew across the uh, ocean in a, what we would call a C-118, 24 hours to get to Europe with a stop off in the Azores. So that was one thing going to France. And then getting there and being in one of the coldest winters that they had, wow. Uh, the area that I was in, Tour-Rosier was the air base that I was stationed at. And it's near the city of Nancy and not too far from the city of Metz, where a lot of things during World War II took place. I bring that up because apparently you that was really in a, in a – coincidental ways what led you to become a flight engineer i mean it was so cold that as i understand from your story that a lot of the pilots didn't want to go out in the cold and and start up their engines to make sure they're good to go so alex decided well i'm just going to teach myself to do it and i'll do it yes i was in maintenance then um i was a uh, crew chief on this strange airplane called a b-66 never seen one in all of my life and it was a pretty good-sized airplane with two engines. And the outside of the airplane was itself secret. But inside, it was top secret. So I had a secret clearance, but nobody would talk about what was inside the aircraft. But this is how I started helping the maintenance men who were electricians and instrument people. On those cold winter nights... They would bring electricians in to work on problems that the aircraft developed in flight. But what they had to do 
they had to bring a pilot out from a village to the base. And you got snow on the roads and icy and cold as hell. None of the uh, pilots would come out. <laughs> so I said, this is enough of this. I ran engines and I taxied a T-33. So I said, well, I'll look at the Dash 1 and learn how to run engines on this B-66. Because none of the other guys in my maintenance outfit knew how to run engines. So that's what I started doing, running engines for the guys uh, to get the problem fixed and uh, get our aircraft back in commission, and they could go home. Alex, when we come back after this break, I want to talk about you. I'd never even heard of the B-66 until I was introduced to you. And uh, as I understand it, that's that was part of the way you went from being maintenance to air crew, even though you might not have been too keen on the idea initially. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're talking with Alex Underwood. He flew 100 missions in Vietnam as part of an electronic combat mission. And don't forget, you can find over 600 podcasts of this show at AmericanWarriorRadio.com. We also stream on your favorite platform, if it's IHOP or iHeart. I said IHOP. You know what's on my mind here. Uh, iHeart or Spotify or Pandora. Uh, and please, please spread these important messages. We'll be back with more as part of our partnership with Distinguished Flying Cross Society and Alex Underwood. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. As part of our partnership, our educational partnership, the Distinguished Flying Cross Society, we're chatting today with Master Sergeant Alexander Underwood. He's a retired Air Force. Alex, when we last left our hero, you were freezing in France, one of the coldest winters on record, but you taught yourself how, how to get in and fire up the engines on these B-66. Was that part of the reason that when they needed a... They decided they want to put some enlisted people on the air crew. They chose you, or did you just miss a meeting? Well, uh, this is how it actually happened. Uh, my flight chief found out that I was running engines and helping the instrument people and electricians do the maintenance on the airplane that it needed to be done. And he approached me one day, and he gave me my run-up license. And he said, uh, I heard about the good things you were doing, been doing at night and helping the electricians and the instrument people out. Well, um, a airman came in. We had two flying squadrons there at uh, Turozia, the 42nd and the 19th. The 42nd flew what we call the Brown Cradle aircraft, the B-66B, and the B-66C model, which had three up uh, in front and four ECM operators in the back, all officers in the back. The 19th flew the RB-66B model, and it was the photo model. It carried uh, flash cartridges, 
and he could take pictures that you would not believe. Now, how I got on flying status was one day my flight chief came to me, and he said, uh, you're going to go to the 42nd. And I said, I don't think so. <laughs> he said, uh, yes, you got to go over to the 42nd. Apparently, one of the airmen came in, and he didn't pass his uh, physical. He had a heart murmur. And since you're single and uh, you know this airplane pretty well, maybe you can teach those guys something about the B-66. I said, well, that's nice, but uh, I, I prefer to stay here. And then he told me, well, the chief of maintenance would like you to go over there. Well, there was my ticket to the 42nd, and that's how I start flying in the B-66. Now, you, you touched on this, Alex. The, the B-66 was originally designed as a, a low-altitude bomber. It started off with a three-man crew. It was converted to seven crew members for the electronic combat mission. Then, of course, you mentioned the, the photo reconnaissance part of it. So these these uh, planes, when they're converted, they weren't armed anymore, right? No. They used to have two 20-millimeter cannons in the tail of the aircraft. In fact, the one at the uh, Air Museum there in Tucson still has the turret for it, but the guns have been removed. And that one at Tucson is a Weatherbird. It, what it did, it flew around and uh, they did weather forecasting out of that airplane. Two people sat in a compartment in the back of the aircraft and they did the weather. Now, what they did do when they modified the aircraft, one thing it did, the aircraft picked up 13 knots of speed when they took those heavy guns out. The other thing what they put in, they called chaff dispensers. Chaff is like aluminum foil. It's just like aluminum foil, but it's cut to a certain frequency. And we had two chaff dispensers on the aircraft, both the B model, C model, and the RB model. All the guns were replaced with chaff dispensers. And where the gunner used to sit, that's where I sat down. That's where they put the uh, flight engineer in. I tell you, Alex, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade guns for chaff myself, but I guess that's not up to me or you, right? That's up to the Air Force. For our folks who enjoy historical movies or, or historical dramas, the, if I'm not mistaken, a, a B-66 was the aircraft that Gene Hamilton was flying when he was shot down over Vietnam, and that became the subject of the book and the movie Bat-21. Yes. Okay. That was my outfit. That was my outfit that he was in. Okay. Uh, the story, the well, the movie is like what actually happened to him, but... What they didn't tell you, the full story of how many people died trying to rescue him from North Vietnam. And the book um, is a lot better than what the movie was. So uh, if you get a chance, read the book, Bat 21. That was the call sign. I bring up that question because I've seen that film a couple of times, Alex. And, and but then in researching the the your aircraft, my understanding was it was supposed to be flying at an altitude 
that was sufficiently high that the surface-to-air missiles weren't able to reach them. Was was Gene's aircraft shut down by a SAM or a MIG? SAM. It got okay. shot down by a SAM. Okay. Oh. Now, the B-56, uh, the ceiling in the book was 42,000 feet. We could go up that high. But when we flew on missions over North Vietnam, we flew at 30,000 feet. And the reason why we did this is because when you learn ECM, you basically, you're sending a signal out at the same frequency as the enemy is sending a signal out to pick your aircraft up or to pick you up. So what you do, you cancel out his signal by the signal strength that's coming from the aircraft. So all he sees on the ground is a bunch of, like an old TV set, a bunch of just static. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but, uh, no, um, that, that 21 was flying at its altitude. And here's the problem with the SAM. Uh, the C model had the four ECM operators in the back. And the aircraft never picked up the SAM missile when it went to firing mode. And that's what happened. Uh, Unfortunately, the SAM hit it. The SAM was good up to about 100,000 feet. Oh, wow. Okay. So you'd have to be way up there to avoid a SAM. You would have to be way, yeah. You would have to be way up there. Alex, we need to take another break real quick. When we come back, I, I understand you, you're you still in France. You get some orders saying, hey, you know, pack your bags for temporary duty. You're going someplace tropical, which might have sounded kind of beguiling, but it turns out um, it wasn't quite what you had in mind. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're talking with Alex Underwood. Alex flew 100 missions, an electronic combat mission over Vietnam, and received the Distinguished Flying Cross for one of those missions. This is part of our partnership with the Distinguished Flying Cross Society. You can learn more, visit dfcsociety.org. Don't forget, share these important messages. You can find over 600 broadcasts at American Warrior Radio or download them on your favorite podcast platform, wherever it might be, and please share these stories with your friends. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're broadcasting from the Silencer Central studios at Silencer Central. Their experts make the buying process simple. They help you select the right suppressor for your weapon, handle the paperwork, and deliver it right to your front door when approved. Visit silencercentral.com to find out if buying and owning a silencer is legal in your state. We're talking with Alex Underwood. Alex is a former crew member, a retired master sergeant in the United States Air Force. And you know, one thing I noticed throughout your story, Alex, a lot of people don't tell you much very often, and then they tell you you can't tell anyone else, and they said, pack your bags, you're going somewhere, we can't tell you where, but uh, get on the plane and we'll let you know en route. Uh, yes. Uh, a order came down, and 
They needed uh, five B-model crews. The B-model had the brown cradle. There were 22 jammers on board that aircraft, and that's what I operated. Other things I did was uh, plan the fuel, how much fuel we would use on a mission, and there were a certain emergency uh, apparatus I would have to work in flight. And uh, basically, uh, take care of the aircraft when it was on the ground and refuel it. The aircraft was secret, but its contents was top secret. And so, therefore, when we landed at a place, we would have to have guards around the aircraft because no one could go aboard. Back to a tropical climate, and my pilot and navigator came to me and said, hey, look, they need five B-mod crews, go TDY for 140 days, and it's a tropical climate. And I told my pilot, I said, you know what? When something's too good to be true, it's probably not true. <laughs> and he said, well, we're a crew, so we're going. When the day came... Our destination was Marone, Spain, and five B-bombers flew down to Marone, Spain, and the pilots were down there to get checked out again on in-flight refueling. Now, the B-66 didn't have what, like, the B-52 and the uh, new aircraft have where the KC-135 would lower its boom and go into a receptacle. What they had to do on the KC-135 in order for the B-66 to refuel, they called it a probe and drove. What they did was they would attach a hose to the refueling boom, and on the refueling boom, they had a basket. Mm -hmm. And that basket, when they flew, it would open up, and that was the target for the B-66 to put their probe in. And it was hard. It was very hard because you had to match your speed with the aircraft speed. And some of the pilots came back with the uh, basket hanging off the refueling probe. But we were down there three days, and they gave me a, a break because they had to put an instructor pilot in my seat to help the pilots relearn on in-flight refueling. The day came for us to leave. And they didn't tell us where we were going. All we knew, we were going to fly east. So we took off out of Spain, crossed Portugal over the Atlantic. And we had two in-flight refuelings. And the tankers turned around and went back to Marone, Spain. So there we are. We're by ourselves. All the aircraft now are flying by themselves and with their navigators and pilots. I looked at my fuel graft and we had a thing called the bingo line that's what i would put on there well when we get down to this line we got to either be landing or find a place to land soon so that happened to us out there over the atlantic and we were supposed to intercept our tanker somewhere out there near bermuda and i called a pilot up front and i told him uh, i said wait a minute we're uh can't wait for this tanker anymore the uh, navigator had a, on his scope the tanker had a beacon that they could put out and this beacon would show up on the navigator's screen and we never saw it so my pilot said i'm gonna make the decision we're gonna go into uh, hamilton Bermuda." so the navigator gave the pilot a course heading for hamilton air base in bermuda 
when we rolled out wings level, the tanker's in front of us. Where did he come from? Because we were all in, we were in a Cirrus. We couldn't see anything. And the guys on the tanker says, what do you want, high test or regular? <laughs> we said, give me what you got. <laughs> because the fuel was getting low. Uh, after we refueled with the tanker, we headed west again. And we got to a certain coordinates, and we were instructed to take out this envelope. And inside that envelope was our destination and also the navigating map for getting to the station. And the station was Mobile, Alabama. So we headed for Mobile, and we got to Mobile, we landed, and then we went in for our debriefing. The debriefer said, Look, this is a top-secret mission. You are not to call home. You are not to call anyone. No one should know that you are in the United States. So that's it. I wanted to call my mom, but I couldn't. Well, and I think that speaks to the secrecy of your mission. There, there's you just you, you're back stateside, but you can't let anyone know. And then you're back in the saddle again, heading west even further. About three minutes for the next break, Alex. But you eventually landed in, in Guam. And you see all these B-52s lined up, and at that time, as I understand it, they were conducting the, was it the Arclight bombing campaign? Did I get that right? That's right. That was a wake-up call for you. I said, hey, we're in, we're in a real war now. Well, it got our attention. Uh, the one thing at Guam, Guam has a sloping runway, a real sloping runway. And uh, but we didn't have a problem landing there. The problem is when you take off on that slope, now you have to have really have the thrust out of the engines to get airborne. But when we landed, everything went okay. And then we start taxing in. We looked at all these KC-135s on the ground and then all the B-52s. But the B-52 had a configuration I had never seen before. It had pylons under the wings and the bombs on it, on the pylons, and they looked like 750-pound bombs that the B-52 had on them, had on the uh, uh, wings, under the wings. Uh, and I said, well, somebody said, you remember that war in Southeast Asia? Yep, that's when the light came on. <laughs> Did you recognize at that point in time if, if that was what you were there for or soon to be involved with? Well, that's what I thought, yeah. you know, uh, but, uh, no, we were, we got debriefed. We were still going to be heading west at the, the next day. So I knew that wasn't our destination. So I thought, well, maybe the Philippines or something. I don't know. But after refueling, uh, after taking off uh, out of Guam, uh, the B-66 surprised me. We were airborne before we got to the end of the runway. And I said, wow, this is great. But anyway, uh, we got to our assigned altitude, and they had a tanker for us. Uh, we got past uh, the Philippines and into the South China Sea. And... There was a set amount of fuel that was supposed to be offloaded for each aircraft. But the uh, 135 crew says, you guys take all the fuel you need. 
Okay, Alex, when we come back, I want to talk about you. You mentioned you only flew a hundred. Well, you flew a hundred missions, which is plenty of Vietnam. You don't remember them all, but I want to talk about some of them when we come back. Ladies and gentlemen, Ben Bueller Garcia will be right back. We're coming to you from the Silencer Central studios right now. Our friends at Silencer Central are having a buy one get one free offer. Visit silencercentral.com to find out if owning a silencer is legal in your state and learn more about this great holiday offer. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're talking with Alex Underwood. Alex flew 100 missions, an electronic combat mission over Vietnam, and received the Distinguished Flying Cross for one of those missions. This is part of our partnership with the Distinguished Flying Cross Society. You can learn more. Visit dfcsociety.org. Don't forget, share these important messages. You can find over 600 broadcasts at American Warrior Radio or download them on your favorite podcast platform, wherever it might be, and please share these stories with your friends. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're talking with Alex Underwood. Alex has two interesting things on his record in the Air Force, the first of which is is the only African-American enlisted man to complete 100 missions over Vietnam. He says he doesn't remember them all, just the hairiest ones. Let's talk about your first mission, Alex. You're up there in the B-66, and you start doing that voodoo you do. All the lights on the panel are lit up, but... You were doing your job so well, they, the pilot told you to, to back off a little bit. That was the first time I ever operated pajamas on the aircraft. One thing about this mission, too, was the first radar signals from the missile and the fire control radars, I knew what they were. I didn't have to say, well, I knew that was a SAM, that was a high finder, and I knew that was a uh, AAA those sounds from their radars, that's what I trained on because we were set to go to war with the Russians, and they used the Russians' radars. So I was familiar with them. That helped immensely. Now, we took off out of Takli, our first mission. We crossed the Mekong River, which we called the fence. And we were all hours, and we got to our point where I turned all my jammers on. Well, that was chaos. The thing is, my jammers covered everything from radio all the way up to radar. And we were jamming everything so well, the rate, especially our comm, couldn't talk to anybody. <laughs> so what happened, my pilot said, hey, turn off the, uh, the comm jammers and uh, so we can talk to each other. Well, that's what I did. I start on my panel and start turning off all my communication jammers. And then, wow, we could talk to each other. And so we completed our mission over the north. That's mission number one. Your, your role, Alex, Pritchard, you flew like, not you were flying escort, but you were paired up with other attack aircraft, and it was your job to, to lessen the threats to them as they were rolling in on target. Is that kind of a civilian summary of what you were doing? Uh, yes. Uh, what happened was we were told when we got to talk Lee, they were losing two aircraft a day over the north. 
they had F-105s on the ground. And these guys were TDY from the States. And when we got there and started our missions with the fighter aircraft, that two a day stopped. And everybody wanted to know, what do the Air Force have in Southeast Asia now that's allowing that? Well, they couldn't really tell anybody because it was supposed to be a secret. But the word got out. Alex, I want to talk about the mission for which you were awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. You have some missions under your belt, and then, again, you're told to report to the briefing room, and nobody's saying much, but then um, your target was Haiphong Harbor, and that took, what, two or three days of go-no-go orders before you someone actually pulled the trigger and you got to go to Haiphong Harbor. Yes. Uh, let me explain what happens when you get alerted for a mission. Normally, you would know the day before uh, that you were flying the next day. And this here came, uh, when this happened, uh, they told us all to come down to the briefing room. Well, I've never seen all our crews in the briefing room at the same time, usually just the ones who are flying the missions. But everybody was there. So we knew that something big was going to happen. And what they did... 7th Air Force was the control of all missions over North Vietnam. The base, Tok Lee, was controlled by 13th Air Force, which was in the Philippines at Clark Air Base. So all our missions over the North were controlled, like I said, by 7th Air Force in Saigon. And this is how a mission usually went. You went in the mission, and the first thing they would do, they would brief the weather over the target. And then the next thing would be the classified portion of the briefing. And what they had in the briefing was words. Words were, let's say, uh, I want to talk about uh, a specific target or type of uh, aircraft or missile. Well, we would we would have a name for that. And also the flights that the uh, fighters were going to fly they were named after cars like uh, Chevy, Cadillac, Buick, and then we had our call signs. So we knew who each other were on a mission. So we sat there, and the last word we would get is a go or no go. And we're all sitting there waiting for the go, no go, especially when they told us that our target was Haiphong. No one has bombed Haiphong yet. And the problem was our allies were still dealing with North Vietnam with cargo and all kinds of stuff, so we couldn't bomb them. Well, uh, I guess they got the word, and we got the word to go and take out Haiphong. Well, it was a it was a day like I never seen before because all of the aircraft were lining up for takeoff. They only had eight thousand feet of runway at uh, Tok Lee with thousand feet of overrun on each end, and it was hot and humid. So therefore, you're not getting all the thrust out of your engine that you could get out of it. So takeoff rolls were long. 
And uh, we got out of, uh, took off out of Tockley after the, tank, the tankers went first, the 105s went next, and then we went. The 105s would hit the refueling tankers, but we went on to the target area. I'm curious, how many, so you didn't, as I understand, the first time you're bombing that area surrounded by anti-aircraft suppression and and defenses, but you didn't lose a single plane on that mission? No. Wow. No, we didn't, we didn't use a, we didn't lose a single plane, and it was, our plane, our, our, our destination was over the, um, South, uh, over the Gulf of Tonquin. And when we flew a mission, we flew a racetrack. Mm-hmm. You flew along a racetrack. And when you get to the end of the racetrack, you would change, uh, altitudes. So let's say we're flying at 30,000 feet. The next leg will go up to 32,000 feet. And then the next leg would go down to 31,000 feet. And we did that alternating through the whole mission so that if they did get a lock on, they're not going to have that lock on for very long. The thing that made ours so bad and dangerous was Hainan Island, which belonged to the Chinese. That was off one of our, was off our wings, depending on what direction you were heading. Well, going up to the coast of North Vietnam at night, you could see the little lights on the hamlets lit up and uh, it looked kind of nice. But as we got closer to Haiphong, everything was black, pitch black. And then all hell broke loose. It looked like the 4th of July and you could hear the uh, Flights going in by their call signs. Ford rolling in, uh, Dodge, River rolling in, and also the Navy was also had, they had targets too, and they were flying up there also. But what my pilot did, um, he decided to stay on station while the Navy was still working targets. The other aircraft went back to Tok Lee. But he said, as long as we got the fuel, we're going to stay on station and help the Navy guys. Outstanding. And, and I think that's certainly part of the reason that your crew was awarded that distinguished flying cross. Alex, we're just about out of time. I just want to share one last thing real quick. Um, another kind of a first, as far as the Air Force Museum knows, you, on your 100th mission, you actually enlisted while airborne in the aircraft. And as far as anyone knows, you're the only person to ever do that. So... Alex, thanks for spending time with us here today, and, and uh, welcome home, brother. It's glad to be home. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. Another great show in partnership with the Distinguished Flying Cross Society. Don't forget, you can find over 600 podcasts at AmericanWarriorRadio.com. Please share these important stories with your friends and associates, and make sure we help educate the folks out there. Until next time, all policies and procedures are to remain in place. Take care. You've been listening to American Warrior Radio. Archived episodes may be found at AmericanWarriorRadio.com or your favorite podcast platform.